Good morning again. If you feel a little like, did I not get the red memo? Um, am I not in the club? I didn't get the email. I went to my spam. It is Pentecost Sunday. You are here. There is like this sliver of liturgical calendar that is bright red, and then we go back to like our greens and blues and purples. Um, but I didn't get to do this with the kids because we had the blessing, but I love to do like, look around the sanctuary. What's different? What do you notice is different, everyone? There's a bunch of red everywhere. This is um, the day where we commemorate the Holy Spirit coming, and to do that, we use the color red in memory of how the Spirit came as fire, and we're going to get to all that today. So if you feel a little like, oh, my blue is showing, it's okay. And if you wear red during Advent, you're like way off. So I don't know. This is the first year I will say that I have worn red, and I'm not really a red wearer, so this is really a step out of my comfort zone. I was expecting Amy Craker to be wearing red, but it did not happen. Yeah. So um, today we're going to focus on Pentecost. We're going to do it by looking at two different origin stories. And so the first is not going to feel like um, we're heading in the right spot, but hopefully by the end there's a connection for us as we move forward. Uh, we're going to start with an origin story from Genesis 11. And I'm going to do this and see if it works. See if it's on. It's on. Yeah, there it is. All right. So you can read in your Bibles. We're reading in Genesis 11, 1 through 9 to start. And it's going to be on the screen as well. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we may be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused their language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. I wonder if the story of the Tower of Babel is relegated in your mind somewhere back in those Sunday school years, either as a kid or teaching kids, and that's where it's remained. Kind of in everything I know about God, I've learned from the children's Bible. Okay, So I actually brought a couple children's Bibles, pictures to show you. So in this story, it says, The Tower of Babel. Some men are building a tall tower. They want their tower to reach to the heaven. People will think they are important. Some people might think they are more important than God. These are proud men. But God does not like pride. Sometimes proud men think they are like God. Sometimes they think they are better than God. One day God makes these men stop building their tower. See how sad they look? They cannot build it anymore. God makes them leave that place. These proud men have to go away to many different places. The proud people are not proud now. They do not think they are important anymore. They know that God is more important than any tower. Now they know they need God. Okay. So according to that preschooler's Bible, the Tower of Babel is about pride. 
I also like this one. This is from the um, Brick Testament. So it's the entire Bible told with Legos. So we'll just leave that there for a minute, I think, so you can look at it. And it uses scripture, so it doesn't have like some simplified version of this story. But I think in looking at that first children's story, if we leave the Tower of Babel just there, it's about either, how did we get all these languages in the world? Oh, there once was a tower, and then God didn't like the tower, and now we have languages. Or um, the people were really prideful, and pride is bad, and you shouldn't be prideful, which is oftentimes how we teach our kids. Here's the story. Here's what the story means. Let's move on. But when I look at the Tower of Babel, and if we're going to give the Bible the credit it deserves, there's a lot more going on to this story than just a bunch of proud men or women deciding that they're going to build a really tall structure. Because that's actually still happening in our world. Um, But just to give you kind of the context of what's happening, um, so we've had creation, we've had the fall, and then there's the flood, and now this group of humanity, after Noah, coming from Noah's family, they're starting to repopulate the world. And they're all huddled together on this plain. And the plain of Shinar is actually Babylon, Babylonia, um, which would become very important for the Israelites because they become captives. And so they're all moving east, and they're on this plain, and they're huddling up, and they're trying to get security among themselves. And I don't know that it's all about pride. I think there's a, a few different things going on here. So I can see the people needing a sense of security. So the world out there is very unknown, and they've had this disastrous flood in their history, and it's um, kind of chaos out here and order here, and we're just going to keep the wagons circled and keep things safe. And then um, this idea of building a name and a legacy for themselves, that we're going to, um, instead of having everything wiped out, instead we're going to have this monument that will tell about who we are and what we did. So they're putting a stake in the ground and they're searching for security. I wonder too, in the tower reaching to the heavens and in that imagery we get from the story, if there's this sense of we really screwed up, we've broken our relationship with God and we're gonna do everything we can in us to try to get back to that place. So whether they actually think they're gonna reach up to the heavens and come back and to restore relationship with God, if they think they're gonna be impressive and earn their place back into favor with God, I think there's something going on here where the people are trying to make up for the wrong that was done. If you've ever done something, I think even simple, like broken a really um, expensive figurine or vase as a kid, And you're like, ah, like you're scrambling, trying to put the pieces back together. Like, I'm just going to put it back to the way it was, and there's no going back. And so the people are in this plane, they're huddled together, and they're trying in some sense to either create security for themselves or to undo the wrong and the brokenness that was done. And they're in this story now that they can't quite get out of. And so they're building this tower, and God comes down. And one of the commentaries I read said, This tower is reaching to the heavens, but God's up in heaven and he has to come down to see it. So like, it's this puny thing compared with God's strength and God's size and power. But I think um, when we keep reading, it talks about how when God sees the people, when he sees this tower, he says, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, 
then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. That's so interesting for me. And as I think about the human spirit and the human ability to innovate and create, and I um, always kind of go back to the Bay Area where we live for a while and all of this energy to be the next big thing, to solve the world's problems, to create the best new app that's going to make everyone happy or successful. Um, there's this drive in us to be number one, to be the best. And when God sees the people building this tower, he doesn't just laugh at them, but he, he says there's, a, there's danger here. It reminds me of when Adam and Eve are in the garden. They've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So sin has entered the world. They have to be cast out of the garden because if they eat from the tree of life, they'll live forever in this state of brokenness. And so they're cast out of the garden because there's a real danger here and letting this brokenness of the spirit continue to go in its full force, whether that's to live forever or in the Tower of Babel to innovate and create unbridled. And so God steps in to confuse their speech and to confuse their understanding of each other, um, which is so interesting to me that we are created in God's image and we are able to do more than I think we often realize we can do. And so he com God comes in and he confuses their speech. Another idea of understanding it is not just like, now you're going to speak Spanish and you're going to speak Chinese and you're going to speak English. Uh, that's very simplified and that's not in the text. The idea is more so they can't understand each other. So they move from being able to understand each other and listen to no longer being able to listen and understand. And I think even if the, um, you're speaking the same language to a person and they are the native speakers of that language, the ability to understand is something beyond just the ability to speak the same language. And so there's more going on here than just what is the origin of the, the languages we have in our world. And the themes that I see here in the Tower of Babel are a theme of unity and being scattered. The people are afraid of being scattered out throughout the world. And so what they do is they unify themselves in this sort of fortress mentality to have security and to have um, safety with each other. And so I think often we think of unity as the good thing and scattered as the bad thing. But really what we see in this story is the unity, the unbridled in innovation and creation that the people are able to do is the bad thing. It's the dangerous part. And the being scattered from Genesis 1 is actually what God has called the people to do. God blesses the people after creation. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Go and into all the ends of the earth and subdue it. So the people are meant to go out and be scattered. And so the unity we see here in the Tower of Babel is actually destructive unity. And the scattering that they're really trying to avoid is what God had in mind for them the entire time. No more Legos. This is how I see the curse of Babel kind of happening in my world right here. Um, so one year at, around Christmas time, our, two of our kids have birthdays right around Thanksgiving and Christmas, and so there's like a whole month of just gifts and parties, and it's me, 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 me. Um, and so one year I was like, we're only getting Legos. 
Okay, so this is my Tower of Babel moment in our house. We are only getting Legos because Legos fit into Legos, but Legos do not fit into Playmobil. And Legos do not fit into Barbie. And Legos do not fit into this, like, Imagine X. Like, what is this stuff that people are just creating all of these um, scattered toys that go out into the world and then they come into my house and none of the pieces fit together, okay? So this, when I look at my house, I go, this is the curse of Babel living today. It's this, okay? And I don't know if you've gone um, to, maybe you've gone to a foreign country or you've tried to help or speak with someone who is not, a, doesn't speak the same native language and you immediately feel that helplessness or um, inability, like, I can't communicate with these people and you feel that. Oh, man. <laughs> Tiffany said, even just a toddler. When I was learning Hebrew, Noah was starting to talk. <laughs> and so she would say things to me, and my brain honestly would go, Hebrew? <laughs> English. Hebrew? English. Toddler. So you're right. Toddler, right there. Um, but now let's move to the story of Pentecost. So I'm going to read from Acts 2. It's a little abbreviated, but hopefully you can follow along with me. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I love that line. I think it's really hilarious. Like, oh, the Bible's hilarious. It is. I love that that's in the Bible. With many other words, this is skipping down to verse 40, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000, 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then if you can see it, this gives you a picture of all those words I try to pronounce correctly. That's all the people, all the different regions they were coming from, the Jews were coming from. So the context for the story of Pentecost, as we know it in the Christian church, is that Jesus has come and lived. He's done his ministry. He's died, risen, 
And in the chapter before this, he ascends back up into heaven. And he told them before he left, he said, stay in the city and don't go anywhere until you are clothed in power. And he's talking about this coming of the Holy Spirit. And the day of Pentecost, um, at the beginning it says, on the day of Pentecost, which we understand is the coming of the Holy Spirit, but Pentecost is actually a Jewish festival. Penta in Greek, are you ready for this mystery to be revealed? means 50. Because it's 50 days after the second day of Passover. So it's like, oh, Penta, 50. Oh, 50 days. And it's also called the Feast of Weeks, or it's known as Shavuot, and it's the um, celebration of the wheat harvest for Israel. It's a really important harvest festival for them, where they come and give thanks for the crops that are given, that God gives to them. And it's one of the three pilgrimage festivals. The other ones are Passover and then Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths. So these are the times when all of Israel, and namely all of the um, Jewish men, are called to come back to Jerusalem and be at the temple and bring sacrifices to God. So for the the, um, disciples to be in Jerusalem at Pentecost, part of it is that they're here for the festival of the harvest, and then you've got people from all over these regions, the diaspora, all the places where the Jews have been sent out, Um, they're coming back to Jerusalem for this festival. They've come for Passover, now they're coming back for the um, Feast of Weeks or for Pentecost. And so you've got lots of different people from different nationalities and groups coming together in the city, and the city would be brimming with life for this festival. And it also came to commemorate the giving of the law on Sinai. So if you think of the Israelite community, they are freed from Egypt, that's where the Passover happens, and then they're traveling in the wilderness and they get to Sinai about the 50th day and the law is given on, um, to Moses. You think of the Ten Commandments and that's all happening. And that's commemorated too on this festival. So we say Pentecost, we think, oh shoot, I didn't wear red. And we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit for one Sunday. But when the Jewish mind, when they had Pentecost in mind, they're thinking of the wheat harvest, they're thinking of the law being given, and the city itself would be filled with a lot of people coming back as pilgrims to celebrate this festival at the temple. And the Spirit in our story today manifests in two ways. First, there's an auditory cue. So there's this sound of a great violent wind coming into the room. And I don't know, and I wish I knew from the text, if their hair was like, like blowing in the wind and everyone's like holding down their papers and like trying to hold on. You picture that? You guys don't picture the Bible this way? All the disciples are like, ah, what's happening? There's a violent wind. Or if it was like just the sound of a violent wind, which could be even stranger. Like, did you hear that? Um, But there's a violent wind coming. And this idea of the spirit and wind is not a new idea that comes here in Acts 2. It actually carries on throughout scripture. So the Hebrew and Greek words for spirit are actually used for breath and wind. So they have those pictures in mind. So if you were to say spirit in the um, Hebrew or Greek speaking mind, you're also going to think wind and breath. And then um, in Ezekiel 37, if you remember the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones, if you've heard that one, and maybe that's again in the Sunday school portion of your brain. But this is what um, God says. He says um, to 
uh, Ezekiel says, he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so the wind there is the spirit of God moving and breathing into this valley of like people. And then they're alive once the spirit comes. And we see um, John, or Jesus in John 3 is talking to Nicodemus and he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So when on Pentecost, the sound of the wind is going to tie in and bring together these different understandings of the Spirit. It's not a new concept of wind. It actually shows us that it's in line with all of Scripture. And I love this passage and what Jesus says about the Spirit. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going because I love expectations. And God is telling me that life in the Spirit is mysterious and unplanned. And I have to wrestle with that. And then we get a visual cue of these flames coming onto the people. It's strange. And we were in Sunday school this morning and Ruth lit like a little candle. And the kids were like, you're not going to put that in our hair, are you? Um, And then they were wondering, like, was it burning? Like, the kids would see fire and they're like, ah! Um, But what is this image of these flames coming down, these tongues of fire, and they're resting on each disciple, not just the 12 um, apostles or disciples that we kind of hear about a lot, but there's about 120 people gathered together in this room, men and women together, and the Spirit comes down and the tongues of fire are on each one of them. And again, this picture of the Spirit as fire is not a new picture for us. If we think back to the burning bush, when God appeared to Moses and called him into ministry and called him into the work to rescue the people, he came as a fire that was in the bush but did not consume the bush. And that's what I think is happening here in Pentecost because I don't think they all left with singed hair. But then we also see um, when in the Gospel of Luke, when the John the Baptist is talking about the Holy Spirit, he says, there will become a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so this idea of fire is also something that we see throughout Scripture. It's coming and a culmination here in Pentecost, but it's not new. And each disciple receives that flame, and so it shows a change. There's a personal and enduring presence of the Holy Spirit now from the Pentecost on. Before in Scripture, when you see the Spirit come, it's often for a certain time, a certain person, and a certain task. So when the temple was being built, the Spirit came upon these people, and I forget their names, but they came on for the purpose of giving them the ability to do the work of the temple, to do all like the craft work of weaving and building. And the Spirit enabled them to do those tasks. We see the Spirit coming upon the prophets, upon Saul, upon David, but it was for a specific time and task to a specific person. Now at Pentecost, we're seeing these flames signifying the presence of the Spirit coming on each individual person. And it's an enduring and personal presence of the Spirit. As I've been reading about uh, Pentecost and thinking this through, I love the intentionality of this day. I love that it wasn't like, oh, you know, like that Wednesday after Jesus went up into heaven. 
Then the Holy Spirit came. It was like, was it like a Tuesday? Was it a Wednesday? Like the people knew exactly. They could say it was the day of Pentecost because God was intentionally having them wait until this day for the Spirit to come. It says 3,000 people were added to the church. And before Jesus said, pray for workers of the harvest, because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So we see on this day that is a festival of the harvest, we see 3,000 people coming to Christ and the church being birthed and growing in this miraculous way. And then we see the Spirit coming as the teacher of people's hearts. So in Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus had told them the Spirit would come and it would remind them of the things. He would remind them of the things that Jesus had taught. And he said, don't fear when you go in front of the leaders and they're persecuting you because the Spirit will give you the words to speak at that time. So on this day that commemorates the giving of the law at Sinai, we see the Spirit coming who would be in the people's hearts to reveal to them what Jesus had taught and to help them discern what was from God and what wasn't. And so we see a continuation of what God is doing. When I look at the story of Pentecost and I see in my mind at least how correlated it is to the story of Babel, I think it's important to know that it's not a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Does that make sense? The Spirit didn't come and reverse the curse of Babel, surprisingly enough. But what the Spirit does and what God does is a retelling and a reimagining of what unity and scarcity can look like in our world. We can't go back to Eden. We can't go back to Babel and make it right. So we can't just bring a unity in our own selves, or say, what happened there, well, we'll correct it. Instead, God is pushing us on toward the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. And we can only go there in the same way that Jesus went, through death and resurrection. And so when the church is birthed, they come out, and then they're actually scattered, and they go out um, through persecution. It's the persecution that really pushes them out into all these nations and places. They follow the same path that Christ has paved for us. That we don't go back to Eden and have things perfect as they were then, but we have to go on and see the restorative work that God is doing and that the Spirit will continue to do in our world now. So we see this idea of unity and scarcity, or not scarcity, but scattering in a different way. Because when the Spirit comes, the Spirit does not speak to the people at Pentecost in a universal spiritual language. Does that make sense? When the Spirit came, the, these Galileans who are known as like country bumpkins in Israel, they are not highly regarded they begin speaking in all these diverse languages. So not only are they speaking in all these languages, but it's the Galileans who are speaking in these languages, okay? And what the Spirit does is he affirms the particularities of all these different people. He affirms their dialects and their languages. Instead of kind of bringing down this universal language that would reverse the curse of Babel. 
So the miracle here is not that now we have this new language that would re reunite us in a way that we have lost since Babel. But what we have here is the miracle of being able to speak to others and they are understanding the word of God. And they are able to listen in their own native language. The diaspora and the spreading out of the Jews is not dismissed, but it's affirmed. So we see a unity that's not conformity. And this idea of scattering, of going out, as Jesus has said, go out into the, all the ends of the earth. There's, again, there's this picture of go out. And we start with the disciples huddled in this room, waiting and unsure and insecure. But when the Spirit comes, their immediate movement is out. And they go out and they're speaking to all these Jews from all these different regions and they're praising God and 3,000 are added. And then as the church is persecuted, they go out even more and the gospel is spreading throughout that region into the ends of the earth that they knew of at that time. So that we're seeing that this idea of unity is not just what we lost at Babel, but the unity comes through finding encounters with the Spirit. It's when we're following the Spirit and the Spirit is at work that we're united so that we can go out in all these scattered places and still do the work of God and still do the ministry of Christ, but we can do it for particular people at particular times, affirming who they are and who God has created them to be. As I was thinking about this message, thinking about Pentecost, I had this temptation to preach what is the all-encompassing sermon on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to preach every element I know about Holy Spirit. I got quickly overwhelmed, and for good measure, because we need to be thinking, talking about, longing for the Holy Spirit every Sunday, not just when we wear red or put red all over the place, but every Sunday. And we need to be seeking after encounters with the Spirit every day in our own personal lives and in our walks. I was reading Henry Nowen, who is um, a priest and he's a writer, and he often ties things together for me better than I can for myself. And he talked about how there's a temptation to go one of two ways. To go out into the world and do the work of Jesus. Or to sit at home and have these spiritual, contemplative encounters with the Spirit. But what was really needed is that we go both. And that we don't kid ourselves into thinking that we can go out into the world without first being clothed with the power of the Spirit. It is those encounters with the Spirit in our own lives that empower us then to go out and do the ministry of Christ. But we can't have one without the other. Because if you do this and you just have the encounters, we find ourselves at Babel again. We're going to make a name for ourselves and we're going to reach up to the heavens. And our work comes to nothing. And if you go over here and you go out to do the ministry of Christ, but you don't have the Spirit as your power, you will quickly crumble and do things that are destructive, though they even could look like they're good, because they are not empowered by the Spirit's work. And so we have to have both. And I encourage you on this Sunday, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, and really focus on who the Spirit is, 
that you would be finding room for both in your life. And as I talked about before, there's not just one universal way to have encounters with the Spirit. I'm not going to tell you all to go on a three-day silent retreat in the desert. Three days of silence sounds amazing to me right now. But what I would encourage you to do is to know who you are deep enough to know, how do I meet with God? How do I create the space and time to create space for God to speak to me? I think so often it comes in those quiet moments. I don't often hear this violent wind coming into my life, but it's when God's presence speaks to me in those quiet and usually desperate moments. But those encounters then should propel us forward to go and do the service of God. And I don't know which one is scarier to you. For me, the scarier thing is the scattered, is to go out and to share with people, to do the work, to serve, to trust God and take the risk and move forward in doing something for, this, for God. I would much rather do the quiet and the prayer and the contemplation and the reading. But if I just sit there in that place, my spiritual life begins to rot. And so I need to push myself to go out. But if your um, inclination is to go out and solve the problems and build the things that are going to make us go back to what was better and perfect, I would encourage you to find those times where you can be sitting and having encounters in the spirit so that when you do that good work that you go out to do, it is actually empowered by the spirit and it will bring unity to the body of Christ and will actually result in heaven coming down more and more into our world. So I encourage you to think this week about what is out of balance for you. And maybe even, when was the last time I felt the Spirit's presence in my life? I think for many of us at West Hills, as I'm getting to know our community a little better, we like to be cerebral. I think that's a fair judgment on us. We like the intellectual. We like the cerebral. We like to think good ideas. Okay? But we need to be having real encounters with the Spirit. And that goes beyond intellect. It goes into intuition. It goes into trusting God to move in kind of risky and scary ways. But to know that the Spirit came upon the people at Pentecost and the Spirit is continuing to be present here today. It's the it's the way we have God's presence among us. It's the way that the church is continuing to thrive and move. is because of the Spirit. And so we have to be figuring out ways that we can be encountering the Spirit in our lives. And I know that we are a community that loves to go out. We go out around the world, and we are tackling and wanting to address issues of social justice and the ideas of like how does God's the biblical justice we see, the call God has for all people in Scripture, how do we bring that to our community and our world? Those are good works that we are doing at West Hills. But if we think for one minute that work can be done without the power of the Spirit, it's going to come to nothing. So I encourage all of us to be not just letting Pentecost be that sliver of red on the liturgical calendar that quickly skips back to blue or gold or whatever we have next. But I want us to be a people marked by the presence of the Spirit. And I want us to be a people who go out in the power of the Spirit, knowing that it can happen today just like it did back in Acts 2 for the people and the birth of the church then. So will you pray with me?
God, thank you for how you work in these intentional ways, these incarnational ways, God, that affirm who we are and all our particularities, where we come from, the languages we speak, and the ways that we speak them. God, you know our preferences, you know our personalities, and you do not disregard them in the way that you meet us. So I pray for your spirit. I pray, come, Holy Spirit, come in a fresh and new way over this community. And may our work going out be marked by your presence and a true encounter with you. God, would you stop us in our tracks when we try to move without you? And would you push us forward in risky and new ways because we know we have encountered your spirit and we walk in your presence. God, may it be true for everyone here today. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.